don't even care Where the flying fishes play You give your love to your car So you give it out anyway I see you rub your hands Across the dirty dash in dismay You say there is no creator But you knock on wood anyway We can't race our race alone But I feel like nature's son Nothing is inside of me That couldn't be inside of you The cold city magic of fashion Drove passion right out of you But the 20th century Smokes a 25 century Lost face in Jesus Las Vegas Bono, unkind of cute We can't race our race alone But I feel like nature's sun Natural magic, spilling out, spilling out all those cosmic rays It's just about 4.30, and that means it's time for DJ Electronica to wrap up. I invite you all, though, to please stay tuned for the next show. It is called The Living Writers Show, where we bring an artist to the studio, in this case a literary artist, and interview them. It is bound to be interesting, so please stay tuned. The last set you heard contained the following. Highway to the Sun by Mr. Julian Cope. There was some Starlight and Dadden by Evoca. Then Two Step de Unis by Ahmed Ardon. And then Mujeres by Paul Raz. I've Been Waiting by Matthew Sweet. And that set started off with Strawberries by Asobi Sescu. Well, I shall leave you with the most fitting song. Let's go walking into the sun. Enjoy, everyone.
day for night and as the day fades but a candle bright for me will you always keep me warm hold me safe and away from home keep day for night and as the day fades but a candle bright for me will you always keep me warm 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 I'll turn this over. Oh, are we ready? Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my Sound of silence In restless dreams I walked alone Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. My name is T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so happy, so happy to have Prita Samarasan here um, by virtue of Skype. Uh, and the wonders of technology, Prita is joining us uh, from France uh, to talk about her debut novel, Evening is the Whole Day. Uh, Prita, welcome. Thanks, T. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Hi. It's so great to speak with you. Um, thanks, for, thanks for being on Living Writers, Prita. It's a great, it's a thrill. It's a great honor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, um, just to kick us off here, I'll read uh, your your bio in the back of your book. Uh, Prita Samarasan was born and raised in Malaysia, but moved to the United States during high school. She recently received her MFA from the University of Michigan, where an early version of this book received the Hopwood Novel Award. She also won the Asian American Writers Workshop Short Story Award. She currently lives in France um, and is speaking to coming to us from France, <laughs> which is quite exciting because I don't usually do these over the phone, Prita. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I should I should say that um, I, I know Prita from Michigan, so this is why we're we're attempting the the long distance phone <laughs> phone conversation on live radio. <laughs> Uh, how are you doing? It's it's about nine thirty, is it over there with you, Prita? Uh, it's ten thirty actually. We're six hours six hours ahead of you. So. Oh, geez. Okay, that's good. It's, it's not right. my math. I was doing the England time, but yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so ten thirty. So hopefully you're having a cup of tea or or, or something. I am actually <laughs> oh. having a cup of tea and a herbal tea of herbal tea. Okay, so. Yeah. <laughs> Well, now we can picture you. Um, and so, Prita, you've actually, um, this last fall, you were on book tour with yes. with this. Your, this is your first, this is your first novel, Evening is the Whole Day. 
Yes. And and how was how was the book tour? How how'd that go? Oh, I mean, it was really, I mean, of course, many parts of it were really, really exciting. I mean, I've been working on this, I had been working on the book for so long, and just to see it out there finally, um, and to realize that people were buying it and reading it um, was incredibly exciting. Um, And speaking highly of it, too. Right, What's like, that? and speaking highly of it, uh, re- yeah, yeah, for the, yeah. I think, yeah, all the reviews have been fairly positive, so that was exciting. I mean, you know, I think many writers would share this feeling of we're, we're ne- not necessarily all extroverts, and we don't necessarily <laughs> like you know meeting a whole lot of strangers in a short space of time and, and talking to them. So the, some of it was intimidating, but I think on the whole, it was a really positive experience, and it was fun to kind of you know see my book go out into the world and, and get a readership. Yes. And how long? You mentioned that it, it was nice to see the book out in the world because it had it had taken a long time to make. How long have you been, how long has this been a project of yours? Yeah, it's kind of a complicated answer because I, I started working on it in December of 1999, but at that time I was in graduate school in a different field. I was getting a PhD in musicology, and so I started this kind of as a side project, and then I would work on it in the summer breaks and a little bit, you know, in, in Christmas breaks and, and think whenever I had time off, but it really wasn't, I wasn't focusing on it. Um, I wasn't able to focus on it until, uh, so at some point I started, I I was taking, I guess I took a couple of creative writing classes at the University of Rochester, and um, then I started doing summer workshops, and at one of those summer workshops, I had a teacher who encouraged me to um, go and get my MFA, because I was, I was, you know, really serious about it, and in many ways more passionate about it than, than my PhD, so, <laughs> so he said that, who, you know, he encouraged me in that direction, so at that point, that was the summer of 2003, I applied to MFA programs, and I came to Michigan in 2004, by then, you know, I'd sort of been working on it for five years, but not, not really, so I came in 2004 to Ann Arbor, and then I finished it while I was in the MFA program. Um, and, so I graduated in 2006, and th- that summer I, I finished the, the draft of the novel. Yes, I remember you were into, I think, uh, that in 2006, like heavy revisions, like going through yes. n- a number, yeah. it, like you had a, a weekly deadline for that. Um, so yeah. so who was the person who encouraged you in 2003 that, that made the, the difference? Oh, so it was John Dalton. His name's John Dalton, and he had, had, uh, at that time, was just publishing a novel of his own. It's called Heaven Lake, and it's set in China. And uh, I was at the Iowa Summer Writing Festival, um, and that's where I met him, and I was in his workshop with a bunch of other people and um, submitted, I guess, a chapter of my novel at the time. Yeah. And had you always been writing as as a young girl? Had you been writing and also, I know piano is important to you, and obviously you, you went in the musicology direction first. (laughs) Yeah, I had always been writing, and really that was the thing that I always loved most. I was writing, you know, as a young child, I think a lot of writers will say the same thing, you know, kind of writing stuff that... um, you know, looking back, obviously, a lot of it was terrible. Even in my teens, it was terrible. But um, I was also, yeah, I was I was um, playing piano. And when I got to college, for some reason, I didn't 
take any creative writing classes. I double majored in music and history, and that's kind of how I ended up going to graduate school in musicology because it just was like a, it was a logical progression, and I didn't think too much about it. But I very quickly realized that what I really wanted to do was write fiction. And, and and why was it? Why do you think that you didn't take the classes when you were in undergrad? Like what you know? Like was it something about was writing an art and separate from? Like a perceived academic I mean, really, like so much of life is random, you know, you realize <laughs> that you make these huge choices and a lot a lot of times it's just like little random things that you don't even think about that much at the time. But I think it was well, I, I took one music class in my freshman first semester of my freshman year and I really liked it. Um and you know, I had been because I had been doing a lot of music at home as well. And so I I really liked it, and I decided to keep taking more music classes, and it just kind of, it, and I didn't have a whole lot of, it was the same, I had taken music and history, and I didn't have a whole lot of room after that for other classes, and, and also, I think, I think to tell you the truth, I was a little bit war, wary of, of taking um, creative writing classes as an undergrad, I wasn't, like I was, I had friends who who were taking them, and I wasn't too crazy about the workshop format at the time, and just like right. it didn't seem, yeah, it didn't seem. I, I wasn't interested enough in the in the in the format of the classes or in the, yeah. That makes sense, Prita. And then so instead, you ended up when you, when you were in Rochester going for this PhD, and that was in um, was it in gypsy music, like the study of gypsy music in France. In, uh, it actually like was. France? I mean, it was just a PhD program in musicology, which is music history. Mm. And so, you know, just it was basically um, Western music history. And uh, when I went in, I actually had a completely different, I thought I had a completely different focus, and I thought I was going to look at the earlier twin, the early 20th century. Um, mm-hmm. And then... And then I guess uh, I, I the the whole the, my dissertation I was working on a dissertation the very very early stages of a dissertation when I left and the dissertation was on gypsy music festivals in France and that was some an interest that that developed pretty late um, and I decided that I wanted so in musicology there are two branches there's the historical branch and the kind of anthropological branch that called that's called ethno ethnomusicology and I decided that I wanted to move more into that branch and and write this dissertation and then. And after a year or so of doing it, I decided I didn't really want to write the dissertation after all. <laughs> but is that is there a, is that was it just a coincidence that that you moved to France? Then it's not to um, kind of follow up on more of the gypsy music festivals. Oh no, not at no. all. Um, I definitely won't be going back to that dissertation. But it's oh, not a complete coincidence. At the time that I was doing the research, I, I traveled around France for f- four months, and I'd been that was not my first trip to France. I'd been here a few times before that. So it's a country that I've definitely had an attraction to for a long time. Um, and so when I, I did research here for four months and I was, um, you know, planning to come back, like I was supposed to get a grant to write the dissertation and then come back and live here for a year or two. Um, and when I decided that I wasn't going to write the dissertation, that was the one part of it that I really regretted, that I wasn't going to be able to come back to France oh, and live right. here. So, it wasn't necessarily um, being called do a doctor. Anyway and just, you know, now I'm not, I'm not doing any research for the dissertation, but I'm just doing the part of it that I, <laughs> that I secretly wanted most. <laughs> That's the way, Prita. You keep, <laughs> keep going. That's exactly the right thing. Um, maybe part of it will surface in, in stories or, or a future novel, maybe, yeah, right? Maybe. You never know. I mean, you know, you can never rule anything out. That's right. right. Grist for the mill. All our, all our 
lives, right? Everything in them. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, and then I was looking, I went to your website, um, yeah. which, which is your name, uh, PritaSamarasan.com. Right. Yeah. And so and so people can check that out if they'd like. And you even have um, a couple of tour dates coming up. It's your like almost the the international leg, the non-U.S. leg of your your book tour. Want to tell us a little bit about where you're going in case someone out there in streaming radio land is (laughs) going to one (laughs) of those locales? The website needs to be needs. It's desperately needs to be updated. I haven't had time to update it in a couple of months already now. But yeah, so. So um, I'm going to the Edinburgh Book Festival in August. That's the next thing that's coming up. And then in October, um, I'm doing a couple of events here in Europe. There's one I'm going to be reading at the American Library in Paris um, in early October. And then I'm going to be doing a very short um, event in Newcastle. There's a South Asian literature festival in Newcastle that I'm going to be at. And then after that, I'm going basically back home. I'm going to Asia and I'm going to a writer's festival in, in Bali, in Indonesia, for, for a few days. And then I'm going to be in Malaysia um, and do a bunch of readings and promotional events there. And at the same time, of course, visit with my family. <laughs> oh, that sounds wonderful. That's And, yeah. so, and so, so you say I'm going back home. And when, when was the last time that you were you were living living there Prita for because oh, I know you came here for high school. I was living there full time of course it was ages ago I, I left Malaysia in 1992 and came to the US to do my last two years of high school at, uh, at boarding school um, and so I haven't lived there since 1992 but I do go back especially now that I can afford it I go back at least once a year and I tend and I stay at least once a month and ideally at some point I'd like to divide my time more evenly between Malaysia and elsewhere but at the moment, it's just you know um, a month or so in Malaysia every year. Yeah. Oh well, that's not, that doesn't sound half bad. <laughs> what, what brought you to the states for the the last two years of high school? Well, um, so I had I guess I'd finished what the equivalent of my O level. So it's you know Malaysia being a British colony follows basically this still uh, follows uh, British educational structure. So I finished my O-levels, and that means that you have two more years of high school education before you can go to college or university. And at that point, a lot of people um, who have been in regular government schools um, go, you know, either either will go abroad or will go into private schools or so so basically, you know, you, you get three streams of people. There's a few who will stay at home in the in the government school system, and many, especially when I was living there in the early 90s, a lot of people were going abroad um, or um, so you going just, to private colleges at home. But why and, the states rather than than England, for example, or? <laughs> Yeah, so 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 going back to, I mean, a lot of it is political too. Actually, like at the time, and and, and still, it was not just at the time. Um, minorities, it's very very difficult for for uh, Indians and Chinese in Malaysia to to get into um, their field of study, their choice of field of study in local universities. So if you could afford it, if you could get away, if you could leave, you you left. And um, my parents couldn't afford to pay for me to go abroad. So I applied uh, to a bunch of different places, you know, for financial aid. And I ended up getting a scholarship to this um, high school in New Mexico that's actually part of a movement called the United World Colleges. And they have, at the, I, now I think they have like 
um, 12 or 13 schools around the world, and they take in, I mean, the, the idea is that they bring in um, students from, you know, each, each school has students from like 80 different countries, and they bring them wow. in for two years. They're all between 16 and 18 years old, um, and kind of... What an, what an amazing together, experience. Study That's... together and play together <laughs> in the, with the idea that that this is a step towards world peace. <laughs> yes, no. <laughs> and on that, not that no. I put it that way. It sounds so, no, it's, no, it's sort true, of ridiculous, though. ridiculously idealistic, but, it, you know, it, it actually was. It was an amazing two years, and the... Um, I won a scholarship to one of these schools, to the one in New Mexico, and at that time I didn't know anything about it. I just thought I was going to go anywhere that gave me money, and oh. they gave me money, and I went there, and it turned out to be an amazing experience that oh. changed my life. Oh, Frida, <laughs> and you're another step towards world peace. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right <laughs> back with Frida Samarasan and her debut novel, Evening is the Whole Day. It was 21 years when I wrote this song I'm 22 now, but I won't be for long Time hurries on And the leaves that are green turn to brown And they wither with the wind Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, uh, Prita Samarasan with her novel, Evening is the Whole Day. Um, I'd like to say thanks to DJ Electronica for bringing us into Living Writers um, with his great um, sets, and also to um, Alex Sergey for engineering and, and doing the great work with uh, <laughs> playing our, old, our oldest album, I think, back in the collection. No, I'm sure it's not the oldest, but it's... It's a Simon and Garfunkel one that we we managed to find. Brita, were you laughing at all because of the musical choice? It's, oh no, I love it. <laughs> it doesn't really scream Malaysia, but if if people had have you know the people who've read the the novel might know why. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to tell us? Do you? <laughs> Do I want to tell you about the choice to include so much Simon and Garfunkel in the book? Or? Yes, why not? Yeah, I, I, I just, I well, <laughs> I really love their music a lot. I'm a huge fan, and I think that um, you know, the, those the, the book is set mostly during nineteen the, during one year, 1979 to 1980, in Malaysia, and that was a time when their music was still really popular. A lot of people around the age of um, well, the, the character who listens to the music, her name is Uma, she's 18 years old, and a lot of people in that age group at that time um, were still listening to Simon and Garfunkel. So I thought it fit the, it fit the setting, it fit the time period, and I just, I just really love their music. So. And, the, and there's, <laughs> there's weighty um, lyrics to go along with it, too, with the sound of silence and, and yeah. sort of building yeah. tension as you're doing um, yeah, and I thought the, the kind of the, the sense of yearning and loneliness thematically fit the novel as well. So, <laughs> oh, definitely, it's true. It's true. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a it, there. There is much yearning and loneliness, even though the cover is this beautiful, you know, like sort of marigold. Uh, 
you know, which is which is so bright. So um, so so don't be uh, fooled by the the cheerful <laughs> yellow flower, right? <laughs> no, there's lots of um, weighty uh, matters uh, within the the jacket uh, within the book pages. Um, so Prita, what did you when you like way back <laughs> in 1999 when you were starting this um, when you were you know in school for something else and yeah. you're just writing whenever you could um, w- what came to you first was it like an an image or was it some idea of like a, a plot line or a yeah. character what it was two different things actually one was. Um that I had always wanted to write about servants. And I had written a couple of short stories and even at one point had an idea of writing a play about a servant. I was just really, really fascinated and, and um, yeah, just... Really why? Do you know up, why? Like By the place of servants in, in Malaysian society, I guess in Asian society in general, because on the one hand, Malaysia, if you went there as an outsider, it would strike you as a completely, you know, it's very developed, it's very westernized it's and affluent, in many ways a progressive society, in other ways not so much, but um, <laughs> you... So, so there's, on the one hand, this very westernized way of living and on the other hand the treatment of servants is this remnant of, of feudalism really like a lot of people that the treatment of the servant in my novel is not atypical in fact there are many many people that that we knew personally that treated their servants much much worse than the family in my novel so i, I just thought it was so do you mean for the, the present day the way that Preta? people uh you know on the one hand live these um very you know normal um liberal lives and on the other hand um, have glorified slaves in their home and how the way that they justify it to themselves, the way that they manage to go through their lives without ever really questioning it or without seeming to question it, I thought that was fascinating and I wanted to kind of get to the heart of that. Um, and the other thing that, that um, had come to me in the very beginning was the image of the two siblings and kind of and that was a much more blurry image, just of one sibling left behind and one sibling far away in America. And I didn't know if these were going to be the same book or the same project at all, but I kind of just started writing, and, and I didn't know how I was going to tie them together or if I was going to tie them together. But eventually, the, actually pretty early on in the process, as I started writing the, the links, the parallels between these two characters, the, the older sister and the servant um, rose to the surface, and the links between the characters kind of just made themselves. So, um, yeah. So, so, it, so it was developing organically then. And, and what, um, how, with the, the structure of the book is unusual too. It's not as if you're, you're telling it in a straight chronology. Um, no. How how did you make that decision with with the time moving time? Yeah. Around? Well, the structure of the book it's more or less backwards. There's some there there are a couple of chapters that are interspersed in there that aren't strictly backwards, but the main narrative of the story is told backwards. Um, and I did that because you know, of course, when I first started writing it, I was writing it chronologically forwards, like mm-hmm. you know the the norm, <laughs> the <laughs> default. Um, right. But I found myself always flashing forward to what happened in the end, or what, you know, the, the things that I, that I, that I thought would happen in the end. Actually, many, many of those things are still in the book. So, so um, I, I, wa- I just wanted the reader to know what would happen in the end because I wanted them to know the consequences of everything that was happening in the novel. Because to me, the book was not about what happened, but about why it happened. And so I just kept flashing forward. And at some point, I just had this, um, you know, moment of insight where I thought instead of just 
flashing forward so many times and it just began to seem, you know, heavy handed and, and clumsy and, and kind of, yeah, just ham fisted. Instead of doing this, why don't I just, if I want them to know what happens at the end, why don't I just tell them the end and then move backwards from there? Yes, um, so, but, I, so, but you don't, so I did that. But and, you don't reveal everything, and, though, Pita, right? When you're saying it, it almost sounds like because you, you, you kind of have like the what actually is happening at the very like the last moment but the the um there's secrets that are are within the book right like you don't know what right what was the consequence not even everything leading up to it but like the the like because so it's not it's fair to say that um the servant girl uh shalom she she had to she had to was being banished from the house in yes. shame yeah. right so that doesn't give anything away like you said because no. it's at the beginning right yeah <laughs> um, yeah um well was so that's really kind of wonderful and when you were going through was it was that something difficult to manage when you were um or 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 is it like you said it was actually something that it was far more difficult to resist um, it was actually a bit difficult to manage because by the time I realized that I needed to tell the story backwards, I'd actually written a lot of it. So I needed to go back and <laughs> rewrite everything because, you know, that the order in which you tell the story matters a lot, um, in, you know, to the, to the way you tell it. So, so for example, you know, in, in a particular chapter, I would have been referring to things that came before, but now that I'd reversed the order of the book, they were going to come after. <laughs> right. <laughs> so when I, you know, in the in those two years that I was in Michigan, I, I know when we would talk about my novel, I, I think, you know, I would always talk about revising it or rewriting, and that was a lot of what I was doing. Is that you know I had realized I needed to use the structure and I needed to basically rewrite the whole thing um, with the new structure. Yes. And was it possible? Did you feel like when you could you catch everything? Did you feel like pretty confident as you went through the different? the chapters which are so which have such great chapter titles by the way (laughs) Um, (laughs) after great expectations that's a great one (laughs) Um, uh, so you you feel like you kind of went through there and 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 in the rewriting of it because it was um because there's such beautiful language too um with yeah, as far as, so in terms of rewriting it um, and being, I mean, you know, obviously when you change the order and there's so many things structurally to, to keep track of, I, I did the best job I could with that with that draft. And then once I um, sold the book and had an editor, like they, that was a lot of what we did too, was to think about, you know, um, pacing and also consistency. Like you couldn't, you know, if I'd accidentally mentioned something that, that in the new structure of the book, the reader wouldn't know about yet. Um, you know, so so a lot of that, you know, the, the editor and later on the manuscript editor, um, helped me with that. Um, which is kind of catching little, little inconsistencies and mistakes and, errors continuity errors but um because it's so amazing there's so many characters well you know what now we've been talking about it would would you mind reading us a couple like um a little a section of it prita so we could so people can hear sure of course um let me just introduce uh, the the section i'm going to read briefly because um it's not from the beginning of the book in fact it's it's from almost the end um of course one of the benefits of the structure is that i can read from almost the end without giving too much away um Right. So, it's, it's, I don't know, our audience has probably figured out by this point that the book is about a family with a servant girl, Chalam, and uh, the chapter I'm going to read from is from the, is from 
right after she arrives at the family home and just kind of the this is the neighbors reactions to her and what people are saying about her so in the first chapter the, sorry the first paragraph that I'll read you you'll hear two about two neighbors and then the others are all family members you I think you'll be able to figure it out okay um, on Tillam's first full day Mrs. Balakrishnan strolls across the street to wonder aloud about her narrow hips, flat chest, and tiny hands. On her second, Cookie Rookie comes a-calling for the same purpose. Too, too sorry I feel for her, auntie, she says to Amma. I myself was forced to work in other people's houses at that age, you know. Twelve, thirteen years old, I was washing bedsheets and big, big pails of clothes with my hands. That must have been in a different lifetime from the one in which her father sent her to a boarding school in England. Suresh said after she's left. Because it simply won't do for lawyer Rajasekharan and family to be caught employing a child laborer, Amma sits Chellam down at the Formica table for a thorough interrogation. No birth certificate, madam, Chellam says over and over. In my house, we got no birthday, birthday, all that. And try as Amma might to intimidate her into a confession with knowing looks and insinuations, Chellam can only say that she's 17, give or take a few months. Her growth might have been stunted by malnutrition, Amma concludes. When she gives Chalam Appa's like-new only courthouse shirts, she advises her to pin up the sleeves. Or you can cut and sew them, Amma says. Then they won't be forever getting wet and dirty when you do your work, and that way they'll last longer also. Perhaps it's Chalam's youth that arouses some didactic impulse in Amma. Or perhaps it's the subtle childlike quality of her manners and movements. The way she wrinkles her nose to laugh at Suresh's rudest jokes. The way she turns her feet in and fidgets whenever she stands before Amma, shifting her weight from one foot to the other and back again, scratching her calves with her toenails as if invisible flies were bothering her. The way she sticks her tongue out of one corner of her mouth when applying herself to a tricky task. Whatever the reason, Amma brims with this teacher man to fishing in Chillum's early days. When she catches the girl squinting at the dining room clock from one foot away, she tells her, Your eyesight is something you must take care of. If you're careful with your money and save up properly, you can go for an eye exam and get spectacles. Amma finds Chillum an empty quality street tin to use as a piggy bank. Here, she says, Every month put your money in this. Don't simply, simply waste it on magazines and kachang puteh. Taking the tin firmly in both hands, Chillum runs up to her room and puts it under her bed. She has 50 cent left over from the money Mrs. Drivedi gave her to take the bus to the big house. Instead of opening her spectacles account with this, she decides to spend it on a long-term investment for more efficient account keeping. She purchases a pocket-sized notebook from the corner shop, and on the first page she makes two columns, marking one, Master Gave, and the other, Things I Bought, in her beetling Tamil characters. Then she lists the months in a third column next to the first, 1 through 12, deciding one year is good enough to start with. And together, but separately, she and Amma pat themselves on the back, Amma for her invaluable contribution to Chillam's moral education, and Chillam for the good sense apparent in the very preparation of this notebook. She will do good work. She will never grumble back when the old lady grumbles at her. She will be so impressive that they will raise her pay after the first few months. Okay, I think I'll stop there, T. Oh, Prita, thank you. That's great. Well, we'll you know what? We'll take a short break, and then we'll come back, and, and okay. we'll, we'll talk a bit. Thank you for reading. That was Prita Samarasan uh, reading from her debut novel, Evening is the Whole Day. We'll be right back.
I hear the drizzle of the rain Like a memory it falls Soft and warm continuing Tapping on my roof and walls And from the shelter of my mind Welcome back. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on Living Writers, Preta Samarasan with her novel Evening is the Whole Day. Um, Preta, right before the break, you you read a passage uh, for us about Chelum, the servant girl's uh, arrival to the house. Thank you so much for reading. <laughs> Thank you. Um, that was it. Was such it was a great almost. I think you could open the book anywhere, really, and um, you know, point to a paragraph and see this rich development of character. <laughs> And layers um, that you give of these really fine details that shows such attention. <laughs> um, it, it was wonderful because this was like a, a way of giving us the characterization of of Chellum, uh down to the part where she puts her tongue out of the corner of her mouth uh, when she's doing difficult tasks. Really, really lovely. Or is that um, is is that something that? Um, the characters, is this like one of the parts, you know, when you're writing through something, there's things that just come perhaps more easily than others. And sometimes it's not always apparent as a reader what what the writers, um, but it seems like you have a, 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 just a gift of creating um, these characters. <laughs> <laughs> and many of them, I might, I, might, I might add, there's many, many wonderful characters created in this novel. Um, is that, do you feel like that's something that you have, a like, uh, it comes to you? Uh, I, I I don't know. I mean, it's it's difficult, you know, to to ask. Um, at least for, I, I guess it's difficult for me to to answer the question which parts of it were easy because a lot of it felt so difficult at the time that I was doing it. But um, I guess you know it's it's all relative. And now that you mention it, um, you know, certain characters. One of the I, I guess it is really. The part that's a joy, because so much of writing is not the kind of spontaneous joy that maybe non-writers would imagine it to be. Um, so much of it is difficult and frustrating, but there are some parts that, that, that are kind of joyful to work on, and the part that is, for me, is often dialogue. Um, I really... And there isn't a whole lot of dialogue in this book, but the parts that, you know, that what there is came, I guess, relatively easily and was easy to easy to write. It just kind of flows because I find myself thinking in that character's voice. So that's the aspect of character, I guess, that comes easily. Yes. Um, and maybe the internal monologue or the, or the stuff that is more introspective is not quite as easy as the dialogue and the stuff you point out, like the little gestures and the little bodily movements, I guess, that I, that I do imagine more easily. Yeah. Yes. I, it, it's a great that you mentioned the dialogue because you're it's kind of amazing what you're doing because I guess let's talk a little bit about the setting for the book, Malaysia. Um, just by saying that you're going to have, um, and it's, it's 70, 1979 to 1980, as you mentioned before, Preta, yes. um, it, you have, um, 
Malay, uh, the Malay population, uh, and then you have uh, Chinese and yes. Indian immigrants, right? And and they're all um, this surfacing in your book. So you're sort of juggling. You're, you are juggling all of these um, different voices and 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 speech patterns and language, actually. Yeah. Yeah. To say to say more about that, I I mean, yes, there is a lot of. But I think for for someone who has lived in Malaysia, it probably would come pretty easily. And I think you know, linguists, if I'm not mistaken, the the term linguists use for this kind of, you know, you're speaking the same language. Basically, it's always English or some version of English. At least in the context of my book, it mostly is. I use some some phrases in foreign languages, but but a lot of it is English, but in in a, a different kind of English each time. And so. Malaysians will often, you know, like Indian Malaysians have their own version of English, and then Malays have their own, and Chinese have their own, and there's some overlap. There's large amounts of overlap, in fact, but but there's some. I think linguists call that kind of different making, switching from one to the other. I think they call it code switching when you are speaking the same language, but you immediately, without thinking about it, you change the kind of so some of your vocabulary or and your diction. Yes. Uh, depending on who whom you're talking to, um, and so since we do that quite naturally, you know, in person, it comes it easily also when I'm, when I'm writing. It's not, that part of it wasn't, wasn't so much of a Right, a, a stretch, right, right. Well, so, so writing about Malaysia too, do you also feel, um, cause I can't say I've read another, um, I mean, not that I'm, I've read all the books in the world, <laughs> but, um, your book is the first book I've read set in Malaysia. Do you, do you feel some, some weight when you're writing uh, a novel of this scope um, and sort of choosing these like historical moments where there's like uh, the birth of a nation as well as this this the growth and and almost fall of a family um, considering like the historical elements in, in the setting um, I mean you have this this place like how because who you're going to be touring in Malaysia but this book was released first here in the states um so yeah how do you balance released, that yeah in the in the u.s and the and the uk oh simultaneously it was released in the um, u.s and the uk um it was released in the u.s first and then a month after in the uk so may in the u.s and then june in the uk and, and um, so when you're writing for people who might not be familiar with Malaysia um, and that there are these um, different groups living there coexisting and the, and the, the you know, the political struggles. Um, yeah. So how was that? How what were the considerations? I guess, you know, there, there weren't a whole lot of considerations, <laughs> to be honest. And, and the, the criticism, I mean, yes, most of the reviews so far have been pretty positive. But the little bit of criticism that I have got is from people who are not used to that or kind of not prepared for the challenge of reading the book because it's really not i mean in some ways i just kind of wrote it for a malaysian audience and um i just figure the the it's not that i want to shut out the other audiences it's not that i want to exclude anyone but i think the the kind of audience all around the world that i really targeted was the kind of audience who would like the fact that i had written it for a malaysian audience does that make sense yes it does um, yes yeah yeah so i didn't you know i didn't really think about explaining anything i didn't think about like defining you know for like quote unquote foreign terms i didn't think about um you know 
and stuff that would make it more attractive or, or less attractive to a foreign audience. I just kind of told the story as I, as I would tell it almost to a Malaysian audience. And, and I think that um, <clears throat> it's been out now in, in Malaysia for, um, I guess, about a month. And judging from the reviews there, I, I think that people really are, that, you know, Malaysian readers really pick up on that, that they really do get the sense that, it's, that it was written for them and that I'm not pandering to a Western audience in terms of, but, but, you know, your, your question is bigger than that. You talked about like, how do I get across like the political complexity of it and, and all of that. But I think, I guess the short answer to that would be that I just, you know, I just tried to tell my story and a lot of my story. I think, I think that you cannot talk about Malaysia. You cannot write about Malaysia without kind of invoking all of that complexity without, for example, talking about race. Yes. I mean, race and class are very, very huge issues in Malaysia. And therefore, you know, when you tell a story that's set in Malaysia, if you're going to tell it, if you're going to tell the truth and if you're going to tell it in a way that's, you know, true to the place, those issues will come up. And yes. so the audience, you know, where whoever is reading it will get a sense um, of, of the issues without yeah. my having to say, without my having to kind of step back and explain. <laughs> they'll kind of pick up on that. Yes. <laughs> That's it, my hope at least. No, and I, it does. And 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 this and it completely works like that, Preeta, because there's like I can think of an example, um, uh, maybe midway through the book where you have um you have Uma, uh, the 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 eldest daughter, uh, who you've mentioned uh, already, and then her mother Ama going on a train ride yeah. to visit Ama's sister, and and a man in the train, a Malay man, uh, speaks to Uma directly, and there's this moment where he's saying, "Well, shame that you don't know, um, you can't read that it says the you know Malay land train, <laughs> um, yeah. and shame on your parents for raising you here in this country, and you don't you." Right, would you that felt to me like an example of um where we could understand what was happening, but it wasn't didactic or or like this is a political moment in the book, you know, yes, yeah, 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 um exactly, I mean, I just uh put you know the the whole episode of may thirteenth nineteen sixty nine it's kind of um, the the race riots it's something that isn't hugely talked about still even now 40 years later is not talked about a whole lot in in Malaysia so I um, definitely wanted it for almost from the beginning of the book definitely wanted to kind of put my characters in the in the middle of that um, to, to and again it wasn't so much to to you know expose the rest of the world to it but it was kind of to um, there was a feeling that we need to we need to talk about this, like to generate yes. a conversation about it, to to put, um, to kind of, you know, it's it's difficult to explain because I also don't want to. I don't believe that uh, that fiction should be just about the issues. Like I didn't make a list of causes that I wanted to <laughs> to address in the book and then address them. But I did. I guess yeah, I did want to. That that felt like such a huge moment in our country's history. But I couldn't leave it out, like to to write to write a novel about race in Malaysia. You know, in a, in a way, my novel is about race. Um, to write a novel about that and not bring up, not have 1969 in there would have felt like an omission. Would would have been false, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so so when you were writing through this, it was you were you were looking for basically, um you were imagining this, this family's life and did it keep growing outward from this? Cause you said it started with siblings. So that was Uma and then her younger sister, Asha. Yes. Then. Yeah. 
Because um, so, there's many yeah, generations. I, mean, I imagine them, and then obviously they had to have parents. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and grandparents are you can kind of go back through several layers of 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 family history as well. Um. Right, Prita, you have like, did you did you draw out uh, a sort of? Uh, I'm like, when I, it actually reminded me of uh, the 100 years of solitude. Um, that that there were so many branches and 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 layers to the family. Is is that something that you charted out for yourself as well, or was it just completely obvious to you as you were creating these stories? Hmm. Okay. Well. I I think that we're going to go to a short break because I might have lost Prita there for a moment because remember everyone we're we're talking to France here. <laughs> and so um we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back and hopefully we'll have Prita Samarison back on the line with her debut novel which is wonderful Evening is the whole day. I'm T Hetzel. We'll be back. <laughs> When streams are ripe and swelled with rain May she will stay Resting in my arms again Restless walk, she'll prowl the night. July, she will fly and give no warning to her flight. August, die she must. The autumn. Chilly and cold September I'll remember A love once new has now Hi, you're listening to Hi. Living Writers, and Prita's back. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. No, not at all. It was pretty funny because I did. I was thinking, I think I've lost Prita, but I'm going to keep talking in case she can hear the... <laughs> I could hear you, actually. Yes, I could hear you. And if you want me to, I can I can go back to the question you were asking about how I kept track of the Well, if you think it's... If you think where it's they, where if, they, how they all sort of showed up. Sure, um, if you think it's but worth anyway, it. You were making this comparison to 100 Years of Solitude, which I think, I, I don't know, I feel like that book is a lot more um, crowded with characters and maybe some, you know, the, the similarity in their names. And I f- felt that it was a lot more dense, like consciously, like deliberately 
um, a kind of deliberate confusion that that I didn't. Think, I don't think my book is quite that no, um, no, <laughs> complex. No, I, but but as far as the yeah, like I was saying, you know, they was they started with these siblings and then they needed parents. And one other character that showed up very very early was the grandmother because I did have this idea very early on that the servant girl was going to be there to look after an elderly person. Yes. Yeah, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Yes. And and so what what are some of the the influences then that you feel like might be from um if it wasn't 100 years of solitude do you have any <laughs> that you sort of look to Prita cuz I yeah I don't know. I mean I don't want to you know I I do love that book very much. I've just never thought of it as a conscious influence. So if you see that in there, you <laughs> no. know, I'd be very yeah, I'm definitely very flattered but um because I love the book but as far as influences that I thought about um um, Bleak House by Charles Dickens Charles was a Dickens. big one. Yes, yes. Um, and Dickens in general, I guess I just really love that kind of big 19th century, um, very talkative, wordy narrator. Yes. <laughs> um, and which, then the other book that do, was a you... huge influence, um, or uh, two other books actually. One is um, Waterland by Graham Swift and the epigraph, one of the epigraphs. Yes. The book is taken from that book, um, this idea of history being a backwards movement and that history is just our... Uh, is just humanity's attempt to to ask why, why, why. Um, That's wonderful. And I, yeah, so I took um, you know some elements of the narrator's voice, but also that that idea from from Waterland. And then the third book that must be mentioned is um, Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie, which is a, again an attempt to write the history of a of a country in a, you know using using a fictional um, construct and and. To, and uh, you know, without trying to sound too 